The Art Newspaper Weekly Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, where the historic and modern are equally valued. Hello, and welcome to the Art Newspaper Weekly Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. This week we look at art very much in the context of world events. We explore UNESCO's ongoing troubles, and we also hear about a new exhibition at the Imperial War Museum in London, Age of Terror, Art Since 9-11, and speak to one of the artists involved, Rare Sarkisian. I wanted to question the idea of losing home. How does it feel once you see uh, this destruction? It's been a turbulent couple of weeks for UNESCO, the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organisation. On the 12th of October, the US government announced that it was withdrawing from the organisation, citing anti-Israel bias and the need for a fundamental reform. Israel followed up immediately with its own withdrawal. The following day, the organisation appointed its new director-general, and much to everyone's surprise, it was the French candidate Audrey Azoulay, rather than one of many candidates from the Middle East. In a moment, I'll speak to Anna Summers-Cox, the art newspaper's founder, about UNESCO's response to the environmental threat to Venice. But first, I'm joined by Ivan McQuiston, a public affairs campaigner in the art market, to talk more generally about UNESCO. Ivan, is the US and Israel's withdrawal from UNESCO a surprise? Not in the current context, I would say, partially because of the Hebron issue. That really is where UNESCO declared it a Palestinian World Heritage Site. And Israel obviously decided that denied its Jewish history. So that caused friction to start with. And that was in July, right? Yeah. And the states have pulled out, citing anti-Israeli sentiment. And I suppose once they'd pulled out, uh, Israel could hardly stay in on the basis that that was the reason that they pulled out. The statement mentioned a number of issues. That was one, the anti-Israel bias, but it also said the need for fundamental reform and US concerns with mounting arrears at UNESCO. Can you say what that what what, what does that mean, mounting arrears? The mounting arrears is probably the biggest issue. Um, so although um, the states uh, went back in a few years ago, having pulled out of UNESCO, and they've done that twice, they haven't been paying their dues. Um, uh, Obama tried to get uh, that about $80 million worth of money that had been held back paying. He failed to do so because it had to go to go through Congress, I believe. Uh, and now the current arrears is somewhere north of $500 million. Um, and so the idea would be if America really wanted to carry on having any influence in UNESCO, it would have to put that money up. And I suspect that's one of the reasons, not the only reason, obviously, but certainly a major reason for why they decided to pull out at this stage. Now, I think a lot of our listeners will certainly cast this news within the general atmosphere of Trump's nationalism. How much is that a factor in all this? Well, who can say absolutely? Um, I suspect that when it comes to the money, yes, it's probably quite a big factor. But I think one of the important things here is um, a lot of people will be having their view clouded by the fact that it is Trump himself. Let's not forget that that Obama um, (laughs) had... had, uh, uh, the US out of UNESCO as well. Um, so I suspect that there are other issues and certainly the Israel one is a, a major issue. But I think the politicization as a whole of UNESCO is a, a serious concern. And I think one of the major issues for the US would be that it effectively puts in over 20% of the money when it does pay uh, and yet only gets one vote and there's no vetoes in UNESCO. On issues. So they're probably thinking it's not a very good investment for them. So is there an aspect of bullying in this, in the sense that uh, the US, as you say, put, had put at one stage been putting a lot of money in and only had the one vote? So is there, is there an aspect of it, 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 it's 
it's not used to having, not used to being this impotent, if you like. It, it could well be. I, I would probably describe it more as sour grapes. But on the other hand, it's not the only country that has that. And in fact, one of the biggest issues with UNESCO is that it has no way really of forcing people to pay their dues. And so, as I said, as we, as we stand uh, here today, you know, certainly Japan and the UK have not paid their dues for, for 2017. And these, in Japan's case, it's because it doesn't like something UNESCO is doing. Um, in another case, it might be that they want to uh, exert their influence in other ways. One of the biggest challenges for the new Director General will be how they can persuade, uh, cajole, etc., the various countries to pay the money that they owe. So let's, let's explain. There is a new Director General. This happened in the same week that the US withdrawal happens. And the new Director General is actually quite a surprise in the sense that it was expected to be a figure from the Middle East. It, it, well, certainly for a long time, it was expected that there were there were four figures from the Middle East that were up for the role, and actually it's gone to a French person. Indeed. Uh, there's never been an, an specifically an Arab director general before, and certainly Egypt were really pushing their candidate very hard, particularly because of the... Um, the cultural heritage aspect of, of their various concerns, which feeds directly into the G- Egyptian economy. Um, and it actually got to the point before uh, the, the, the final votes where Egypt were considering, uh, certainly there, were, there was a lobby to the Egyptian government suggesting breaking off cultural relations with France if they didn't withdraw their candidate. They publicly called for f- the French candidate to be withdrawn. The, the bigger issue in, in the centre of it all was that there was effectively a standoff between the Egyptians and their candidate, and the Qataris and their candidate. And so what happened in the end was that the Qataris effectively went into an agreement with the French candidate and then withdrew at the last moment, leaving the French candidate with a clear open field. So Audrey Azoulay is the new uh, Director General, and surely she has to start addressing what we've been talking about so far, which is nothing to do with what UNESCO should be doing and everything to do with the politics of UNESCO. That surely is the main priority, right? Uh, yes. In fact, in, interestingly, I, I identified as the main priority by some of the other candidates in their vision statements, notably the Azerbaijani candidate who put it as the number one issue that needs sorting out. Uh, fantastic on a wish list. How you do it? Hmm, not quite so sure. Um, but yes, she does. She's a former cultural, man, uh, cultural minister uh, under Francois Hollande. Um, and what she needs to be able to do is to have some uh, teeth uh, to her power base in order to bring all the various countries in line. But one of the issues about this is that UNESCO, from that perspective, isn't really that powerful. And it has what I see in the limited experience that I've had of it, some institutional um, weaknesses that it's going to make that job very hard indeed. Can you describe what those institutional weaknesses are? Well, I think the first thing is, that, as I said before, the um, this idea that you only get one vote between different countries, regardless of the money you put in, there's no veto. And so the whole, if you want, political structure within it, which is designed um, to avoid politics, actually makes politics more of an issue. That needs to be changed. So they may need to look at the way they actually have that voting structure and the way that influences cast within UNESCO itself. The other thing is that the other big issue is that it's running on about half its budget at the moment, somewhere around about $350 million a year. But you go to the headquarters in Paris and it's as big as it was. And I imagine the cost base is as big as it was as well. 
Um, but in my own experience of sitting in on UNESCO conferences, they run very slow. I've described them as slurotic because diplomacy has become such a major part of it um, that everyone has to be listened to and so forth. And one of the examples of that was in the meeting that I was in in May when they voted in a new chairman of the particular um, conference that I was attending. Um, somebody got up to say, you know, just to congratulate them and, and thank them and uh, wish them well and to congratulate the previous chairman on all the great work he'd done. And then probably something in the region of 20 to 30 other um, delegates did exactly the same. And this was a meeting that was already running an hour and a half over time. So we have an agency which is set up to promote education, science and culture, which is actually not performing that task. Is that your assessment? I'm not really an expert on the education and science task, and it is doing some good things. So, for example, at the moment, it's, um, as I understand it, it's uh, putting together a trying to put, help to put together a new early warning system for tsunamis in the uh, Indian Ocean and Pacific. And that seems to be a very good thing. But it's a non-contentious issue. It's the cultural area, because culture, cultural heritage is very much a tool in, in soft diplomacy, um, international relations, it becomes a very controversial area. And this is particularly so at the moment because of what's been going on um, in the Middle East, uh, with, with Syria and Iraq in particular. Uh, in America, it's a big issue now because of Donald Trump wanting to um, change or rescind a lot of the Antiquities Act out there. And that's because in the last days of the Obama administration, the, the president extended the, the, the uh, remit of the bill hugely. And now they're trying to roll it back. And so that's going to be a major issue as well. Can you explain a bit more about that? The Antiquities Act in America was extended on, in the last days of the uh, Obama administration. And a lot of the areas that it covers are um, geographical uh, positions that are important to Native American culture. Um, one of the most famous is what's called the Bears, Bears Ears Monument. Um, and uh, I suspect that what one of the issues about this is that those areas which now cannot be exploited commercially in any way are also fairly close to things like maybe oil reserves or um, shale reserves or things like that. Um, plus, there's an element of if you set in protection in those ways that you're denying public access in a way and that goes against the whole sort of concept of freedom within the states. So you've got these two very different um, imperatives that are sort of fighting against each other. And the Trump administration thinks that the Obama administration went too far with this and is now talking and even in the process of trying to roll some of this back. Is there any suggestion that the US might return to UNESCO? Certainly, I mean, in, in the interim, it's saying it still wants influence, which I'm sure that some people will be smarting at saying you've withdrawn. Why should you have influence? But but still, is there any sense that the US may return quickly? Well, the first thing I'll say is they haven't actually left. And they won't leave until um, it's over another year, actually. They still remain on the central board, although they don't have the same voting rights that they would have if they had been put, putting their money in. So things may change. The other thing is that, you know, quite a lot of UNESCO's policies are good ones. And just because you're not in it doesn't mean say so you're not going to follow them. So I should imagine if there are um, elements of policy that uh, the United States likes, um, then it will follow them. I, I, I find it very difficult to believe that, for example, that they would completely deny the 1970 Convention um, on cultural property. And so that will probably be, uh, that will ca carry on and be ongoing.
And it should be said also that many of the world's great experts in numerous fields within UNESCO's scope are in the US. Absolutely. And we're not just talking about Americans here. You know, people from all over the world. And part of the reason there in many cases is because the American uh, academic institutions have the funding to uh, support them in their research um, in the way that other countries don't. Now, a lot of the reporting in the art newspaper has reflected unhappiness with the current director general. To what extent is she, her name's um, Irina Bukova, is she doing a worse job than any of her predecessors? To what extent is any of this her fault? Difficult to say, really. Um, I'm, you know, she's been there since 2009. She came in saying, again, I suppose, like they all do, that they're going to, there's going to be root and branch change, that they're going to sort out the money. Well, within three years, she'd lost half the money. So that was going to be a massive blow in itself. Um, and that obviously, when you lose that sort of money, it actually restricts what the work that can be done. And not just the extent of the work, but the quality of the work. And that's what I found in, in dealing with the UNESCO myself. Um, so, for example, I, I, you know, declaration of interest here, I, I spend a lot of my time advising trade associations. And I, my particular links are because I am sort of defending the legitimate antiquities trade in the face of everything that's going on now. We very much want to stop the crooks, the smugglers, the looters, because when they succeed, then um, it's the legitimate trade that gets it in the face. Um, now, Bookova, for example, came out not that long ago, sort of at the end of March this year, to say there's a huge amount of evidence to show that uh, a lot of stuff was being looted from Syria and Iraq, cultural property, and was being coming out onto the market. So we actually wrote to her and said, well, we, we haven't seen any evidence of this. And in fact, if you look at World Trade Organizations and all the other reports, uh, Interpol and so forth, Europol and Operation, Operation Pandora, uh, and now, for example, the, the latest uh, European Commission investigations, not one of them has said there is any evidence at all. We're not even talking about a little bit of evidence, any whatsoever. So, uh, but yet she's saying that there is huge evidence out there. So when we wrote to her, we asked her, well, would you please publish the evidence? And then the reply has come back actually from her deputy to say, well, often this stuff is very difficult to identify. Well, if it's difficult to identify, how do you know that it's there? And if you're saying it is there, why can't you publish the evidence? So I, I would say there are a lot of question marks over that sort of thing. I know it's only sort of one small area, but it's, but it's indicative of the general approach in my view. I think one of the most concerning aspects of this conversation that we're having and in, in, in a lot of the reporting in the art newspaper is this real feeling that some of the real core principles, the good idea that is the, that is UNESCO, has been in some way lost or betrayed by recent events. Can you remind us what UNESCO was set up for and to what extent it might be able to retrieve that? Yeah, I, th uh, I think one of the key elements about this is that people forget the exact reason why it's set up. And if you actually look at the definition under it, it was actually set up to promote world peace. That is the core objective. And it was set up to do that through um, linking up through the areas of education, science and culture. And, and a focus on that, possibly with maybe a smaller, more effective body that could operate and react to situations quickly, that would be really, really good. Because the idea is the basic concept of what it was there. And let's not forget that America, United States, was one of the key players in setting it up in 1945, which was, again, post-war, that was the reason it was set up. Uh, it's all there. All the intentions are good. 
but somehow it seems to have lost its way. Does it, should it be um, reviewed and uh, reconfigurated in a different way? I don't know. But certainly when you look at the, the state, the size of the body now, the way it's done, it does seem to be a sort of administrative beer moth. And the, one, one, one begins to wonder whether the primary objective is now has become its own survival rather than what it's actually there to do. Ivan, thank you very much. My pleasure. Anna Summers-Cox is the founder of the art newspaper. In our pages, she's regularly written about the plight of Venice. Between 1999 and 2012, she was chair of the Venice Imperil Fund, which restores monuments and works of art in Venice and funds research into flooding, tourism, demographic change and much more in the city. Venice faces urgent problems and we felt this would be a useful case study with which to analyse UNESCO's recent actions. Anna, could you briefly remind us what the urgent challenges facing Venice are? Climate change, climate change, climate change. (laughs) I mean, basically, Venice has had it um, by the next century unless uh, it gets proper governance and a proper long-term plan. And things like the cruise ships, which are hideous, are uh, a byproduct of the fact that there's no proper plan. Okay, so when you say Venice has had it because of climate change, can you explain a bit bit more about the sort of detail of how that might happen? Because of climate change, you're going to get sea level rise. So if we get anywhere near the maximum, which is nearly a metre by the end of the century, Venice um, will be basically underwater unless uh, you completely shut it off from the sea. And at present, that isn't possible, even though they are building temporary barriers. Now... To what extent can UNESCO be involved in that process? So the Italian state, the local Venice authorities obviously are controlling this, but can you can UNESCO influence it? UNESCO can't implement anything. Um, it is a watchdog body. And this is where it's failing, because uh, instead of being the dispassionate, uh, clear, critical voice, uh, it's bending to Italian government pressure that doesn't want to have... Uh, its failings shown up. Okay, so what are those failings, we should say? The failings are that, first of all, uh, it's a a government that works particularly short-term. It doesn't work beyond uh, each single government, which sometimes lasts a few months. Secondly, it's devolved most of the power down to the local regional level, whereas this needs a national plan. Um, There are 21 different agencies involved in the um, governance of Venice. That is far too many. It needs an overarching body. Um, I regret to say it is also corrupt and will uh, apply undue pressure when, when, when it feels that its interests are threatened. So um, UNESCO is failing in managing that. So in other words, UNESCO is not challenging the Italian state and the local Venice authorities enough on what they are being told about Venice. Uh, not only that, it's actually colluding in some instances. For example, in 2011, there was going to be a very important conference that was arranged by the UNESCO office in Venice that was going to have all kinds of people coming, um, scientists from around the world, people who are specialists in, for example, sea level rise. Two weeks before it was due to ha- happen, it got cancelled by UNESCO's office in Paris because that, that some of the scientists were going to be saying things that didn't fit the bill of the um, very powerful consortium that was building the mobile barriers. And they had great influence on Berlusconi's government. So a minister got in touch with the Italian ambassador to UNESCO, went to Irena Bokova, the head, then head of UNESCO, and the conference was cancelled. Now, when you were involved in Venice in Peril, for instance, 
Were there incidences of good practice from UNESCO that you observed in that time, or has there long been a sort of dysfunctional relationship between UNESCO and Venice? What UNESCO used to do was um, channel the money that the private um, charities for Venice, such as Venice in Peril, raised uh, towards the Italian uh, architectural authorities um, and, and, and see to it that the money got spent well. But then that in turn was, was managed by somebody whom we, Venice in Peril, had provided for them. Paradoxically, the UNESCO office in Venice is not for Venice. It's actually for Southeast Europe and dedicates a very small amount of its energy to the city. And as I say, it is not the clear, dispassionate voice that it should be. So what would you advocate that the new Director General at UNESCO does in connection to Venice? I think the new Director General should look very closely at the recommendations of their own subsidiary body, ECOMOS, um, International Council of Museums and Sites, um, which gave an absolutely stinging report on Venice when uh, it was initially proposed that we put at the heritage sites at risk list. Um, and this got suppressed last year by UNESCO. And it looks as though it's going to be suppressed again because they should have put, put Venice on its sites at risk list last year. Um, uh, it's been kicked into long grass again for this year and again into 2018. So uh, this has got to stop. Uh, it is quite clear that Venice is at risk and UNESCO should say so. Can UNESCO do anything, for instance, about the cruise ship issue? For instance, you've written a lot in the art newspaper about how cruise ships are damaging the very fabric of Venice. Is is that something about which UNESCO can kick up a fuss, for instance? Yeah. If UNESCO cultivated his reputation for being an honest, dispassionate voice, it could have huge influence. That is all it can, can do. It can influence the world. But if UNESCO is known to be corrupt and subservient to national governments, then there's not a damn thing it can do because it hasn't got any money to spend and has hardly any officials to send out to the sites. Anna, thank you very much. Next week, the Imperial War Museum in London opens Age of Terror, Art Since 9-11, an exhibition looking at artists' response to conflict in the years since the terrorist attacks in the US. I went to the museum as the show was being installed to talk to Sana Moore, the exhibition's curator, and Hrea Sarkisian, the Syrian artist now based in London, about his work Homesick, which he's showing in the exhibition. Sana, if we could just begin by describing what the show is. Yes, it's a group show of over 40 international contemporary artists who have responded to conflict since 9-11. It's a thematically grouped show and um, it's the largest contemporary art show that the Imperial War Museum has ever done to date. Why did it seem important to do this show now? Is it a particularly urgent moment or is it something that that the the museum feels it needed to catch up with to a certain degree? I think it's... um Maybe something that's been a bit more of a slow burn than that. You know, it's something that that the museum has wanted to cover for a while, and sometimes it just takes time to um, come together. Um, but you know, it seems fitting at this moment because we seem to be in the continual state of emergency as a as a world. Now, there are four themes which analyse very different aspects of this this current reality. Yes. So the the first theme is nine eleven and artist direct or immediate responses. Um, then those can be first-hand experiences on the day or um, responses that happen maybe 10 or more years later. Uh, the second section is state control, and that's looking at um, how 
state controls have changed since since 9-11, the increase of um, mass surveillance um, and issues like detention without trial. The third section is weapons and um, the development of weaponry in the last 15, 16 years with particular emphasis on drones. And the final section is home and that looks at um, artists who um, have fled their homes because of the consequences of uh, wars that have come out through this period of time and also um, looks, looks at veterans who are coming home from these wars. Let's turn to you then, Freya. Can you tell me about the work that you're showing in the exhibition? Uh, the work is about uh, the apartment building of my parents, where they live uh, and where I grew up until I left Damascus in 2008. Uh, <clears throat> so what I did is I, I built a model of this uh, apartment building. It was uh, 1 to 30, the scale of the model, and it was all made of uh, like raw materials we use for building uh, constructions like a concrete and blocks and metal uh, net, uh, nets, etc. So what I did, I built the building and uh, I worked with an architect uh, to construct the whole thing because I'm, I'm not an architect or a, nor a builder. So it took us two, two months to do the whole thing and we finished and I decided to destroy the, uh, the building with the sledgehammer and the whole process took eight hours to destroy completely. It was completely flat. And the work itself consists of photographs of that process? No. Uh, well, the work, the, the main work is two screen uh, videos where on one screen you see the, the building crumbling uh, on its own and next to it there is another screen of my uh, like uh, head shots of myself uh, hitting with sledgehammer. Can you tell me about what that process felt like? Because this is, a, this is not just an abstract building. This is a building in which you are personally invested. I mean, the, the, the whole the idea of this project came as... Uh, because I've been away since 2008 and I did not witness uh, the war that started in 2011. And uh, so... The only my uh, I only followed news through uh, through the screen and through my parents who lived in Damascus and still live in Damascus, and I always refused to do anything that relates directly to the war uh, that, because I haven't witnessed and and I, I I have to say that I just felt and still feel that it's unfair to do something about the people who are suffering. And because eventually, uh, as an artist, you, you might show it in a white cube gallery, uh, like white space gallery, and sell the work. So in, in that, it's more moral for me not to do this. So that I came up with the idea of working about home. Yeah. And this, uh, it's because the destruction of someone's home could be either through war or uh, by war or by natural uh, disaster or uh, for any other reason. So you... And I wanted to question the idea of losing home. How does it sound or uh, feel once you see uh, this destruction? It's interesting in relation to the photographs that are in the Tate collection now, which are spaces which were used for executions in Syria. And in a sense, when you see these photographs, they look like 
squares when you know what they are you suddenly see an image of what's projected onto them do you feel that this work in the imperial war museum relates to those photographs of the execution spaces in that sense do is there is there an aspect of the sort of ghosts of people i think there is the aspect of erasing trying to erase something and uh uh when we come to homesick uh, the 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 building I mean, of uh, of my parents i i had uh two things that uh, i dealt with is one is this constant fear that i i had always and still have until this day that something will happen uh to the apartment to the house where my parents live lose my parents lose home lose memories and uh and the second uh issue was for me it was how to get rid or to get rid of these images that i keep carrying on me by destroying this uh this thing and with 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 the execution squares it's it's it it has a similar approach because uh i've seen uh in my childhood i've seen hanged bodies on this squ- on one of these squares so whenever i pass by uh this this one specific square which was next to my father's shop i kept seeing hanged bodies so for me i thought maybe using photography because photography is uh some it's a medium to prove uh, to uh, to show evidence so with the help of this medium I, i thought maybe i it would help me to erase these bodies from my memory which of course it did not help at all i kept seeing can you tell me have you have, have you shown the film to your parents yes uh last june i had an opening at uh, in beirut at the surso museum and for the first time i showed the video there uh and my parents came and they've seen the videos did they tell you what they thought uh they i think they are kind of in a, in a, in a shock but they kept it for themselves rather than uh this is also something has to do with the culture that we're not very much uh outspoken feelings and uh, it's always we keep it inside uh that's why it it was quite difficult i think for me and for them to engage so there's a sort of sense of the limits of documentary photography in your work I always feel that that the that in a way if documentary photography is first and foremost a sort of about, about a striking image your work is about a striking image and then different layers, layers. are unraveled slowly over time yes. Yes. can you say something about those layers and 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 do, in a way are the layers do the layers come before the image or do you always start with the image if you know what I mean uh the layers always comes before when i start doing a research uh for uh, for instance i did a project about hidden armenians uh in turkey uh these armenians were forced to uh convert into islam during the genocide people became uh, muslim they had muslim identities and uh, at, until at some point uh the grand uh children they realize that for instance why we don't know anything about our grandparents why we don't have stories where do they come from you know they started to it's it's a very long story i'm making it very short and from there they started to realize that they have armenian roots so this whole process of research it took me 3 years eventually after 3 years i found nine families who converted So after building all the story and uh, all these layers I went to Istanbul for two weeks and photographed these families. 
And can you tell me something about how those photographs look? They look silhouettes, black, no faces, no identities. You can see only their hands, uh, legs, watches, uh, uh, no identity. You, do, you cannot, uh, because they're all hidden. Thank you both very much. Thank you. Age of Terror opens at the Imperial War Museum on 26th of October and continues until the 28th of May next year. And that's all for this week. You can read more about UNESCO at theartnewspaper.com and in the coming print edition of The Art Newspaper, which is out on the 1st of November. If you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe. And if you have a spare moment, please do post a rating or review. You can also let us know what you think on Twitter or Facebook at The Art Newspaper. See you next week. Music